You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. All right, Grace, if you will, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you don't have your own copy of Scripture with you, it's page 954 in your pew Bible right in front of you. So I want to encourage you to turn there. 954. As many of you know, a few weeks ago, a large portion of the eastern seaboard experienced an unprecedented event, an event that resembled scenes out of an apocalyptic movie, Smoke-mageddon. Haze and smoke from Canadian wildfires 500-plus miles away blanketed our skylines and caused our air quality to rise to extremely unhealthy levels. In fact, at the peak of this surreal event, New York City ranked number one in having the world's worst air quality, even outdoing places like New Delhi, India. I mean, it was that bad. And and because the smoke was so potent and potentially poisonous, there were countless outdoor activities that were canceled, and professional sporting events were canceled, and people were told to remain indoors for the protection of their health. Now, fortunately for us in NEPA, it didn't take long to experience a breath of fresh air, right? After a couple of days, uh, the smoke blew away and things returned back to normal, so to speak. However, I recently read that uh, with the Canadian wildfire season just kicking uh, up, it's quite possible that these smoke-filled apocalyptic scenes may return later this summer. In fact, some people are saying it could be a summer filled with smoke, so that's exciting. Uh, Rain and smoke is our summer so far. But it just goes to show you, church, it just goes to show you how far-reaching the impact of a wildfire can have on the overall health of a population. I mean, that's 500 miles away, and it's still reaching us, right? Well, in many ways, the same can be said about the far-reaching impact that sin can have on a church body. Friends, just as poisonous air pollution has the ability to spread quickly and impact the well-being of countless people, moral pollution has the ability to spread quickly and impact the well-being of God's people. Isaiah 9.18 says, Surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickest ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. Church, just like a wildfire... When a believer lives in persistent, unrepentant sin, it doesn't take long for the debilitating effects to sweep through their individual life, to sweep through their marriage, to sweep through their family, and to sweep through their church. It's for this reason that we as individual believers and as a church body must do everything that we can to keep ourselves from being morally polluted. In fact, no one teaches us this lesson better than the first century Corinthian church. You see, the Corinthian church was a church. Let's start there. It was a church. This wasn't a bunch of unbelievers. This was believers. This was you and I, right? This was a church. But it was a church that was morally polluted by sin. They were a church that was spiritually contaminated by scandal. They were a church that was spiritually poisoned from the inside out. Needless to say, they were a church that was in desperate need of purification. And so this morning, as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians, we're going to learn God's process for purification. We're going to learn God's way for handling unrepentant sin within a church body. And it's through our study 
that we're going to be reminded that handling it God's way is the only way to maintain purity and integrity in the church. You guys want to maintain purity and integrity here at Grace, yes? Well, you might be regretting that after we get into today's study, but I'm glad you want to anyway. That's good. Uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to hop into your word today, Lord. And this morning's passage is, it's difficult, Lord, but it's necessary. And we recognize, God, it is all an extension of your goodness and your grace to us. So we just pray your blessing over our, our, our time together and your word, that you'd be honored and glorified and that you would speak to us through your word using the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so church, you know, one of the benefits of living in the town of Troop is that we have free garbage pickup. We do, free. You don't have to pay a dime for garbage. Um, and actually, I live on the main drag, so I actually have two days of garbage pickup. It's Wednesdays in the front and Thursdays in the back, so I'm living the dream. Um, we don't have any garbage fees. We don't have any garbage dues. We don't, we don't have to adhere to any major restrictions when it comes to getting rid of, rid of our trash. Now, the reason why we enjoy this benefit is because the powers that be in our town evidently made a deal to put a landfill in our town. And the exchange was, we'll give you the landfill, you give us free garbage. Fair enough. However, as nice as this benefit may be, it does come with some very potent drawbacks. For example, every once in a while, when the weather pattern is just right, the whole town and surrounding townships stink. All right? They stink. In fact, a couple years ago, it was a Wednesday night here at church. We were leaving the church, and either a teen or one of the leaders smelled what they thought to be a natural gas leak here at the church. And so after uh, the fire trucks showed up and the gas company showed up, they determined that was not natural gas. That was coming from the landfill. So all this to say, by accepting the presence of a landfill, we've essentially accepted the putrid effects that come with having the landfill. I wouldn't have it in a way, by the way. I still like the free garbage, but that's besides the point. <laughs> but friends, the same can be said about sin within the Corinthian church. You see, as we're soon going to see, God's people had accepted the presence of a major sin within their midst. And as a result, the putrid effects of that sin contaminated the church. And so in today's text, Paul rebukes the church for turning a blind eye to sin. And in doing so, he provides four principles for getting a handle on a sinful scandal within a church body. So let's begin by looking at the first principle. Number one, the church must take sin seriously. That's number one. Let's look, let's look at verses one through uh, the first part of two. So Paul writes, it is actually reported. It is actually reported. Okay, you have to get those words. This is Paul, and he's, seriously, guys, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogance. Bam. Wow. Let's start there. Or stop there, I should say. You know, one of the realities of living in a sinful world is that all people, including God's people, are prone to wander off God's path. We're prone to wander. In fact, Robert Robertson, he recognized this when he wrote the beloved hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so, friends, because we're prone to wander, because that's still our natural inclination, we need to uh, be on high alert when it comes to sin, right? 
Genesis 4, 7, it says, Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. You see, church, every single one of us in this room, listen, every single one of us in this room is one stupid decision away from causing a widespread, devastating impact on our lives, life of our marriages, family, church. And so it's for this reason we must take sin seriously. And so the church in Corinth, they, they failed to take sin seriously. In fact, they wandered so far off God's beaten path for their lives that they were knee-deep in a spiritual scandal. And so what exactly was their sin issue? Well, just like an onion, the sin within the Corinthian church was multi-layered. I mean, looking at the specific sin issue, first we learned that the sin was public. That's number one. The sin was public. The words actually reported means that word got around that a major spiritual scandal hit the Corinthian church. Now, I want you to keep in mind the context because we hear about, and sadly, we hear about scandals happening in the church all the time, right? But we live in Twitterverse, right? We live in the Twitter world. And so when, when there's a major spiritual scandal, it gets reported on Twitter, and within a few minutes, everybody hears about it, right? However, in ancient times, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, there was no telephones, no internet, none of that kind of stuff. So it took time for the word to spread. People talked. There was no FedEx, there was no UPS, there was no USPS. And so when Paul wrote this letter to Corinth, keep in mind, he was in Ephesus. He was like 250 miles away. The Aegean Sea was separated the, the, Corinth from where Paul was. But this sin was so scandalous that people kept on talking, and eventually word got around to Paul. Number two, second, we learned that the sin was promiscuous. A believer had an immoral relationship with his stepmom. You heard me right. I'm not going to go any farther than that uh, because we're in a mixed company, but you get the gist. And, and so shameful was this sin that Paul said, this isn't even tolerated even among the pagans. In other words, despite how depraved the unbelievers were in the city of Corinth, even they drew the line at that kind of immorality. You see, the sin within the Corinthian church was the kind of stuff made for the Jerry Springer show. Third, we learned that the sin was persistent. The phrase for a man has his father's wife implies that it was ongoing. You see, this wasn't just a one-and-done sin. This was a working relationship. Charles Swindoll, he said it this way, he said, Paul wasn't merely expressing his surprise that some young adolescent had fallen head over heels for his father's new younger bride and caused a bit of embarrassing uproar in the church. Rather, Paul describes the sin as a permanent fixture among, among the church. I mean, it was just a thing. It was just a common thing, and everybody knew about it. And that brings us to the fourth thing about this sin. We learned that it was protected. In other words, it was a sin that the church knew something about, but they didn't do anything about. The phrase, and you are arrogant, shows that the Corinthian believers were apathetic towards the sin within their midst. Instead of mourning over the sin or confronting the sin, the church effectively enabled it. That's why I say protected. They just basically enabled the sin that was happening in their midst. Which, of course, is the exact opposite of what a church is called to do. I like what James says. He said, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, we're supposed to bring him back. If someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so all this to say, because the Corinthian church did not take sin seriously, they soiled their reputation, they embarrassed the name of Jesus. And so without beating around the bush, Paul cuts right to the chase, and he tells the church exactly how to handle this scandal. And this leads us to the second principle. Number two, the church 
must tackle sin radically. They must tackle it radically. Follow along with me in verses uh, 2 through 5. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And, and as if I'm present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And I recently read some sad news about NFL legend Deion Sanders. Uh, evidently, he may have to get his left foot amputated. Uh, due to some blood flow problems that are in the area. And he's already undergone several surgeries already to remove his big toe and his second toe and, uh, because there was a blood clot, evidently. And, of course, the hope is that the doctors uh, can find a way to save the foot and restore circulation. That's the best outcome. And actually, I was just reading an update that that seems to be the case. However, if they are unsuccessful, a radical response is required. they got to cut off the foot. Why? Because a foot without proper blood flow is not only problematic for one area of the body, but it can also spread and become problematic for other areas in the body. And so therefore, in order to prevent even more major problems from happening, for the sake of the whole body, the foot may need to be removed. You see where I'm going with this? You see, the same principle applies when it comes to handling a major unrepentant sin within the church. Radical sins require radical response. And in this case, Paul called for the unrepentant believer to be removed from the church body. And this is both for the sake of the sinner and for the sake of the saints. You see, the hope is that excommunication will cause this sinner to repent and be restored. That's the hope. But in the meantime, their removal from the church also protects the church body from the spread of more problems. Are you with me so far? Now, that being said, if a church is functioning properly, well before getting to the point of excommunication, an unrepentant, or well before getting to the excommunication of an unrepentant believer, a church should follow their specific guidelines that Jesus gave us to follow when confronting sin. In fact, I want you guys to turn to them quickly with me. Turn to page 823 in your pew Bible, uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 18. It's 823 in the pew Bible, and it's page whatever in your own Bible, but it's Matthew 18. Uh, I just want to, I want to show you what Jesus said about confronting sin. Because you know what the truth of the matter is? In a church our size, you might have beef with somebody here. And you might be wrestling with how to handle it. Maybe some of you, you got some anger that's storing up for you or bitterness or whatever because you feel like you got sinned against. Well, Jesus has an answer to that, how to confront sin. And so in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. And so there are a few noteworthy applications in this passage I just want to touch on briefly. It's not really directly related to 1 Corinthians, but it does kind of relate. Number one, I want you to notice that Jesus began by saying, if a brother sins against you. This tells us the, the process for confronting sin is meant for those within the church body, not for those outside of the church body. 
Likewise, the first step in the process is keeping it private. Private. In other words, if someone sins against you, you go to him alone, him or her alone, and you work it out. Okay, you don't gossip about it. You don't mask it as a prayer request with other believers. You know, this person, I got a problem with them. Let's just pray for, let me just tell you exactly what the problem is and how they sinned against me, and then we'll pray over it. You don't want to do that, okay? It's gossip. Just go to that person. Talk to them. Because here's the reality. And actually, go to them with a gentle spirit and a humble spirit, not all with guns a-blazing, because they may not even realize they sinned against you in the first place. They could be completely oblivious to it. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So then, go to a gentle, humble posture. Just talk, you know, whatever happened to talking to people? We all, everybody's so, like, we live in this world where everybody gets offended about everything, right? Just talk. And don't get offended. Just talk. Chill, right? And so then after the initial conversation... If the offender admits their sin and repents, the matter's settled, go home. It's over. Hug it out, go home. However, if they refuse to acknowledge any wrongdoing or refuse to make things right, uh, then Jesus says we're to share the burden with a few dependable believers, not in a gossiping way, but you're just sharing, we're just following Christ's example. It's not gossip. It's just simply, hey, you already tried to do this. You're, you're trying to work through the process. They didn't listen, so you're going to go to a few dependable believers and, and basically, you're going to share with them the facts of the case as you know them. And then you're going to pray for wisdom and discernment on how to handle it. And so this actually helps ensure that the matter at hand isn't merely just a personal squabble or a false accusation or even an overreaction. I mean, maybe you go to this person thinking they sinned against you, and they don't really repent because they don't feel like they have anything that, to repent of. And then you go to the two or three witnesses, and you share what happened. And the two or three witnesses are like, dude, seriously? That wasn't a sin. Like, that's just a personal squabble. They're an Eagles fan, you're a Giants fan. You know what I'm saying? Like, get over it. Like, it's not a sin, although it is kind of sinful to root for the Eagles. But you know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes you just have to, like, chill out. Not everything is like a sin. And, in fact, Scripture says it's, it's, it's to our glory to overlook an offense. All right? We don't always have to get offended at everything. So you got to chill. got to chill. But, again, if it's a major deal, if it's determined that you were truly sinned against, then your approach, you're to approach the offender again, with, with these witnesses present. And the reason why they're present is so that they can verify the truth of the conversation that you had with that person. And if the offender still refuses to repent, then the private matter is to be brought publicly to the church. And, and keep this in mind. I want you to remember something very important. When it comes to confronting sin, the goal is always restoration, not humiliation. If a sin issue rises to a church-wide level, the aim of the church is not to publicly shame the sinner. The aim of the church is to bring them back to Christ, to win them back to Christ. Tony Evans says the church is the final court of appeal, but it's also a family. This is the time for brothers and sisters to rally in the Lord around a brother so he might be restored. And so then, after being brought before the church, if the offender still refuses to repent, then they must face church discipline by way of excommunication. Okay, that's like the last resort. Um, I've been here for, for almost 15 years. Rarely do we ever get that far into the process. God's been very good to us, but it could happen. It could happen. And so, so now, under normal circumstances, okay, I say I emphasize normal. Under normal circumstances, believers should follow the guidelines of Matthew 18 for confronting the sin within their church. 
However, the circumstances in the Corinthian church were anything but normal. The impact of the unrepentant, incestuous believer had already begun to spread like an infection through the church. Therefore, to prevent the spiritual infection from spreading any further, remember, the church was actually, they were not healthy. They were enabling this sin. I mean, the whole, the whole thing was a mess, so Paul had to like come in and intervene hard. And so in order to prevent the infection from spreading any further, Paul instructed them to take drastic measures. He said, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You feeling the weight of this passage yet, church? To deliver a person to Satan. One of the hardest things you could do as a church. But to deliver a person to Satan is to thrust an unrepentant believer. Remember, this is a brother or sister in Christ, but it's to thrust them back into the world on his own without the comfort and care and support of the church. This painful process involves removing them as members of the congregation so that they're, they're no longer regarded as a brother or sister in Christ. It also involves the loss of all association and fellowship with the church, the loss of the blessings that come with taking the Lord's Supper, the loss of benevolent help from the church, and even the loss of the spiritual protection that comes with being part of a local church body. That's how it's supposed to be handled. You see, when a person is given over to Satan, it's for the destruction of the flesh. Meaning, as a last resort, the church is to just let the offender go and let the destructive nature of their sin have its way in their lives. This is not an easy thing, church. And sadly, letting someone go in their sin can result in sickness, sorrow, weakness, pain, or even premature death. James 1.15 says, sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. There's a couple believers that I know that, that their, their sin got the best of them. You see, God disciplines those that he loves. Discipline is always an act of love when it comes from above. And because God loves his children so much, he's going to sometimes, he's going to go as far sometimes as to prematurely take their life if they're unrepentant. If they're a threat to themselves or to the church or to his glory, he may, in his sovereignty, decide to cut their lives short. Because simply put, God won't allow his children to continue in flagrant sin without any consequences. As the late Johnny Cash used to sing, and knew to be true in his own life, you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Now again, the primary goal of giving an unrepentant believer over to Satan is not punitive, it's restorative. Paul said, I love this, he said not so that he, he could be broken or humiliated or shamed, he said, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, the hope is that the unrepentant believer is going to reach rock bottom, realize that God is the rock at the bottom, repent of their sin, and be restored back to the church. That's the whole point of handing them over. they got to realize it the hard way. Now, it is worth noting that the expression saved in the day of the Lord is not a reference to eternal salvation. Every time we see the word saved in Scripture, it doesn't always mean eternal salvation. What makes God's grace so amazing, church, and we just got done singing about it, how that we are free from condemnation, what makes God's grace so amazing is that it's all sufficient in our weakness, all sufficient to cover all of our sin and shame. No matter how far a believer may fall into sin, he or she can never lose their salvation. How many of y'all are thankful for that? Amen? 
The expression here is a reference to Paul's desire that this man would respond well to church discipline so that when he stood before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, which is the day of the Lord, by the way. Paul just explained that a couple chapters ago. Dave preached on it. The day of the Lord is standing before the judgment seat of Christ, not to get into heaven, but your eternal rewards are at stake, what, what you're bringing into heaven with you, basically, what you get when you get there. Paul is hoping that, man, if we hand this guy over to Satan, the goal is so that his spirit can be saved, he could be restored back to spiritual health, so that when he stands before the Lord, he's got something to show for it. The hope is always restoration. But nevertheless, even if this didn't happen, church discipline allowed the church body to move forward without the threat of being morally polluted. And this brings us to the third principle. The church must treat sin quickly. Quickly. Look at verse 6. Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Church, when an aggressive cancer is found within the body, the goal is to use aggressive treatment to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Why? Because once the cancer metastasizes, it has a chance to spread. It's much harder to control. Well, the same is true when it comes to unrepentant sin within the church. Sin is like an aggressive cancer. And the longer we let it linger without treatment, the more likely it's going to spread. And once it spreads, it has the potential to kill the whole body. And so it's for this reason unrepentant sin must be dealt with quickly. And so Paul used a baking illustration to illustrate his point. He said, just as a little bit of leaven impacts the whole lump of bread, so too does a little bit of sin impact the whole congregation. It's akin to one bad apple spoiling the whole barrel full, or one microscopic virus infecting an entire body. We know a little something about viruses, don't we? Or one small hole in a tire causing it to go flat. Man, yesterday I was driving in my van and this dude was, he was going to turn in left somewhere and I you know, did that whole go around him thing and my van kind of went a little, Carrie doesn't know this, my van kind of went a little bit over onto the sidewalk and I saw a nail and I ran over it. And I'm just thinking, oh man, here we go. Like I'm going to have to deal with a flat tire. Now fortunately, no flat tires. We're good, Carrie. But one little hole ruined your, your whole day, right? A little bit of sin can cause a whole lot of heartache. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul later wrote, he said, Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. You see, the good character of the Corinthian church was corrupted by the sin within their midst. And so Paul used the Passover as an analogy to drive home the importance of following through with church discipline. Look at verses 7 and 8. He said, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, in Jewish culture, it was customary to throw away or clean out the old leaven in the house when the family prepared for the Passover celebration. They did this so that the bread that was used for the celebration would be completely free from any leaven, as per instructed by the Lord. In fact, to violate this command brought, a, brought huge spiritual consequences. It was a big deal. The presence of even a little bit of leaven in the bread would have greatly hindered their relationship with God. Exodus 12, 15, it says, On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. It's a big deal. Well, in the same way, the Corinthian believers needed to clean out the leaven of sin in their own congregation. It's this idea of purity. See, actually, Paul said in verse 7, 
He said, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. In other words, his point was, you guys are already pure. Positionally speaking, you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're covered by the blood of Jesus. So in a way, you're already pure in terms of your position before God. But you're not living that way. You are living in sin, and you are causing problems, and you're embarrassing the name of Jesus, and just things are not, this is messy. And so Paul wanted them to clean themselves out. His point was that, look, Jesus already died. He's already been sacrificed for your sins. So clean out your old way of life. Make room for the new way that Jesus offers. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, when a person believes in Jesus, they're, already, they're given this new identity. And along with that new identity, they're given the Holy Spirit to help them live as new people for God's glory. And having this permissive attitude towards sin, it greatly hinders a believer's ability to live a life pleasing to God. And it also greatly hinders a church body from experiencing God's blessing. So, so think of it this way. Every week, I go back to the trash illustration. Every week, we get rid of trash in our homes, right? Some of y'all pay for it. I don't. We, we all get rid of trash in our homes. We take whatever garbage built up over the course of the week and put it on the side of the road so it could be taken away. And we do this on a regular basis so that the refuse doesn't pile up and corrupt the integrity of our homes. Well, it's the same with sin. As believers, we need to quickly get rid of the sin in our lives to maintain spiritual integrity in our, in our lives and the life of the church. Are you with me? Am I making sense? Ephesians 4, 31-32 says, Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. This leads us to the fourth principle. The church must trace sin internally. Look at verses 9 through 13. He said, I wrote to you in my letter, this was a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. And I'm not talking about, he says, I'm not talking about, I don't mean the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, he's not saying don't associate with people in the world. He says, I'm not talking about that, because we have to rub elbows with unbelievers. He said, but now I am writing to you that not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or an idolater, or reviler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I came across a story of a man who stopped at a gas station, and he asked the attendant to wash and wipe his windshield. And so when the attendant finished, the man said, that, that's a terrible job. You did a terrible job. The windshield is as dirty as when you started. Redo my windshield. And so the attendant washed and wiped it again. And afterward, the man looked it over. And again, in frustration, he said, my goodness, can't you even clean a windshield? The window hasn't changed. And the, the attendant did it again. And as the man sat in his car fuming, and then finally his wife reached over and pulled off the man's glasses and wiped them. Put them back on his face. And at which point everything was made clear. You see, the man spent all this time judging the guy on the outside when the problem was with the guy on the inside. His perspective, how he saw things. 
Church, as believers, we have this natural tendency to spend more time judging the actions of outsiders than we do the actions of insiders, don't we? Oh, we get fumed when, the, when non-Christians don't act like Christians, don't we? We don't like it when non-Christians don't act like Christians. We protest when non-Christians don't act like Christians. Shouldn't we expect non-Christians to act like Christians? On the other hand, according to Paul, as believers, we shouldn't expect non-Christians to act like Christians, but we should expect Christians to act like Christians. We cannot control what happens outside the four walls of this church, of this church, friends. We can't, but we can control to a degree what happens inside these four walls. And Paul's point is that the church needs to hold one another accountable. We need to hold one another accountable. When a professed Christian lives in persistent, unrepentant sin, there comes a time when we must no longer associate with them. In fact, we're not even to share a meal with them, according to Paul, which in, 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 uh, in Jewish culture, that was like an intimate, in Greek culture, that was an intimate time. Like that was like, that represented close unity and fellowship. Paul says, don't even share a meal with those kind of people. And again, the goal of this type of discipline isn't punitive, it's restorative. It's God's last resort for drawing a wayward believer back to himself. And so as hard as it may be to go through this process, we as God's people need to trust him with the process. Now, now here's where I want to I pause and I want to reel you back in in case you're getting a little nervous here today. All right? I want to I reel you back in a little bit. I know today's topic is heavy. And so I want to be very clear on something. The instructions in today's passage are for extreme circumstances only. In other words, today's passage isn't teaching that everyone in this church needs to be perfect or else. Church, if this was teaching we all got to be sinless and not have sin issues, we're all going to be under church discipline. In fact, I'll be the first one to walk out the door. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so you got you to read this in perspective. We all have sin issues and shortcomings. In fact, the church by its very nature is designed to be a hospital for sinners. It's designed to be a place where those who know they are sick can come and find healing. We can't lose that. The instructions in today's passage are not meant for people who know they are sick and desire healing. How many of you know that you're a sinner and desire healing? Okay? Church is for you. This is for you. This passage is meant for believers who know they are sick and don't desire healing. They're for believers who have been counseled and warned, yet continue to live in this persistent, rebellious, unrepentant sin, the type of sin that's affecting the church. So for their sake and for the sake of the church, they must be purged. So are you with me? Everybody go, ah. So all this to say, church discipline is a very difficult, debilitating process for everyone involved. Very difficult. And so therefore, I want to encourage you guys to do everything you can to maintain, or excuse me, to, to ever come close to going through what Paul talked about today. Do everything you can to prevent that from happening. Do everything you can to maintain spiritual integrity uh, before the Lord. In other words, if you want to avoid this type of behavior, if you want to not even come close to this type of behavior, behave. Just behave. If we all behave, we'll be in good shape. But here's the deal. You're going to misbehave. You're going to misbehave. 
we, you know that, real talk, right? We're going to misbehave because though the Lord saved us from our sin, we still have that natural inclination to sin against the Lord. And God has an answer for how we misbehave. When we misbehave, and we will, don't allow time for sin to stick around and pollute your spirit and the spirit of those around you. Instead, be quick to repent and get right with the Lord. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many of you are thankful that the Lord is faithful to forgive us time and time and time again when we, when we call out to him? Amen? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That word pure means to cleanse from dirt and filth and contamination. As followers of Jesus, we need to make this conscious decision every day with the help of the Holy Spirit to keep ourselves from being contaminated by sin. And in doing so, we're going to see God's blessing and power in some remarkable ways as a church. And so with that being said, I'd like to close with one simple question for you to ponder and it's this is there an ongoing sin in your life that you need to repent of right now not when you go home not a week from now or two weeks from now like right now because you could fool me i could fool you we could fool one another all day long we could play that game but we can't fool god If your answer is yes to this question, I want to encourage you, just take, take the next few minutes to, to claim that verse I just read. Confess your sin to the Lord. He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Repent of your sin. And in doing so, you're going to find refreshment and renewal and restoration in the Lord. I love what Psalm 32 says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. How about it? Amen. And of course, as I close, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the greatest joy this side of heaven, of course, is knowing for sure that you're going to heaven. And friends, make no mistake about it, you can leave here for sure knowing for sure. You're going to spend eternity with the Lord. You know, this morning we talked about, was really focused on the presence of sin and how it hurts the life of a believer and the church. But as I mentioned earlier, as terrible as this sin was for this believer in Corinth, he was still a believer. He was still a believer. He still had eternal security because he was forgiven from the penalty of sin when he placed his faith in Jesus. It's the penalty of sin that hurts those who are not believers. And so very quickly, you see, the Bible teaches that from a positional perspective, our sin separates us from God. Why? Because God is holy. He can't have anything to do with sin. And so therefore, if left in this state when we die, we must go to a place of eternal separation from God. The Bible calls this place hell. Yet God, in his great love for us, became a man in Jesus and lived a perfect life and died on the cross, taking your sins and my sins upon himself. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and in doing so, he provided a way for you and I to be saved and have forgiveness of all of our sins and have the free gift of eternal life. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. By the way, one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture, amen? Friends, there's only one sin on planet Earth that God cannot forgive. One. The sin of unbelief. 
And that's a decision you need to make today. You can't, make, you can't choose to believe in, in, in Jesus after you die. It has to be done today while you're still alive. And so if you want to be forgiven for your sins and be assured of your salvation and be in the presence of God for eternity, all you must do is admit that you're a sinner before God, repent of your sin, asking God to forgive you, and believe in the person and work of Jesus. Believe his sacrifice on the cross was enough to save your soul. And that the moment of belief, you are guaranteed the gift of eternal life. And if you have any questions about what it means to have eternal life or you need a little bit more clarity on how to, how to know for sure that you're saved, be sure to talk with me after the service. Come forward, grab one of these information packets here. But by all means, don't leave here without knowing for sure that you are a child of God. And so at this time, I'd like to invite the praise team forward. We're going to sing one more song in response to today's message. And let me just pray over you, give you guys an opportunity to examine your own hearts as well. Lord Jesus. I want to thank you for this passage today, God. It's a difficult one, but it's sometimes we just need a good whack to get us back on the straight and narrow. Lord, I'm thankful that you love us so much that you're willing to do whatever it takes to draw us back to yourself. That is an amazing love, God. And God, I just think of those within our church, I think of myself and everyone here, Lord, that if there's just any sin within our hearts, Lord, that we would just repent and give it over to you, that we would never come close to having to go through the process of church discipline uh, here in our midst, God, that you would protect us uh, from the attacks of the enemy, that you would protect us from going down the, the rabbit trail of sin that leads to destruction. Lord God, give us purity in heart and in mind and unity as a church and love for one another. We're so thankful for your grace that covers it all. We love you, Lord God. Pray your blessing over our day in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.